143rd Psalm. What we'll do is read our text, and then we'll go to the Lord with these prayer requests. Psalms 143. A couple weeks ago, we began uh, a, a well, it's not a series, because I don't preach series, but we started preaching out of the 143rd Psalm. <coughs> and um, we uh, want to draw our attention once again to that chapter tonight and uh, say a few words that the Lord has laid on my heart this evening. Psalms 143. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Psalms 143, verse number 1. The psalmist says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness, and enter not into judgment with thy servant. For in thy sight shall no man living be justified. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Selah. Now all that first portion, he's pouring his heart out to the Lord. And then he begins to make some requests. Verse 7, he says, Hear me speedily, O Lord, my spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake, for thy righteousness' sake. Bring my soul out of trouble, and of thy mercy cut off mine enemies, and destroy all them that afflict my soul, for I am thy servant. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here in the house of God. I do, Lord, pray for these requests, that you would meet with them in a way, Lord, that would both bring about your will in our lives, but also, Lord, that we would see evidently your hand in the performance of those matters. We have desires, we have ambitions, we have requests. And Lord, of course, our heart craves to see those things happen. But above all, Lord, help us to pray and to say, not my will, but thine. Help us to be submitted unto you. And Lord, help us to seek above all things that you'd be glorified in these matters we brought before you. And I pray that you'd bless the preaching tonight, Lord. I pray that you'd use it, Lord, in the weakness of my flesh and feebleness of my strength. I pray that you'd make up the hedge. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts and in our minds tonight that would bring you glory, that would teach us and show us more of who Christ is, and that would draw us deeper into your presence and into a closer walk with thee. Lord, we love you. We'll be sure to thank you for all that takes place. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When we approach Psalms 143, we find that it divides itself into two portions. The first half of it, from verse 1 down to verse number 6, The psalmist is setting the stage and framing the context for some of the statements he's going to make following. And he is describing the challenges and the trials that he was experiencing in his life. In verse 1 and 2, notice what he says. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness, answer me. And in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant. For in thy sight shall no man living... Be justified. In the first two verses, he's pleading with God to answer him. 
Evidently, this time in David's life was a season of silence. He's seeking the Lord's mind. He's seeking the Lord's will. He's seeking the Lord's presence. And though certainly the explicit and express presence of God is always there in the life of the believer, I think we would all have to admit if we've walked with God any length of time that we have periods and seasons in our life when though we know by His promise that He is there with us, we don't feel deeply His presence. We don't feel deeply the comfort of Him being there. And and sometimes it just feels like we seek God, we desire God, we pray to God, and we struggle because we get no answer in response. I would tell you this, that while it's always desirable to get an answer to our prayers, if you pray and don't hear from God immediately, don't give up and don't get mad. Because often God teaches us in the silence things that He cannot teach us when He's speaking. I remember hearing a man say years ago, you know, even in a classroom, the teacher is always silent during the test. And in our life, when we go through trials and, and difficulties, we shouldn't be surprised when it's compounded by a sense of divine silence in seeking for the Lord to answer and just struggling to hear from Him. I would say it was a season of silence in the psalmist's life. But then in verse 3, he begins to enumerate some of the problems he's having. He says, For the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. It wasn't just a season of silence. It was a season of suffering. He describes what we can assume is a very literal enemy. Now, it's interesting that he says the enemy. I think he's recognizing that there is a spiritual aspect to these sufferings and recognizing that spiritual warfare is a reality. But we have no reason to doubt that he probably had some specific person in mind as well. Someone that was making his life more difficult. Some commentators have uh, conjectured that it might have been during the time that Absalom had uh, revolted against David. Uh, it could have been during the season when Saul was hunting him. Certainly David's life is not short of occasions when he was imperiled and had real literal enemies that were breathing down his neck. And then beyond that, the spiritual warfare that's compounded on top of that, he is suffering in a deep and meaningful way. He uses this language. He says, he hath smitten my life down to the ground. He says, I feel beat down, beat down. He said, he hath made me to dwell in darkness. Now, it could be he's speaking literally. Certainly, there were times that David's enemies drove him into caves to have to hide, but there's no reason to believe that this does not also have a spiritual application as well. And he's talking about discouragement, depression, defeat. He says in verse number four, therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. Boy, there's a word we've all used, isn't it? Overwhelmed. I just feel overwhelmed. Say, preacher, I've never felt that way. Give it about two weeks. You'll feel that way. All right. <clears throat> overwhelmed, just feel like there's more than we can handle. I, I would love to agree with the preachers that would tell us that God will never put more on us than we can handle. But uh, the problem, like Brother Curtis said the other day, I read my Bible and it messed me up. And I, when I read that uh, Paul tells us that God put more on them when they were in Asia, that they were pressed uh, beyond measure above strength. 
the Bible, when it talks about not suffering us to be tempted above that which we are able, it's not talking about trials and sufferings, but rather it's talking about the solicitation to do evil. And it's saying that God will never put you in a place where your only choice is to sin. But if your perspective on God is he's never going to put more on you than you can handle, you're going to have a rude awakening. In fact, God will deliberately put more on you than you can handle so that you must go to him to get the strength that you so desperately need. That's what Paul says. He said, we found in ourselves the sentence of death that we might put our faith in God, which raiseth the dead. He said, we learned God in a greater way than we ever knew him because of what God had put on us. The psalmist speaks of being overwhelmed. I think many of us could say a hearty amen to being overwhelmed. It was a season of silence. It was a season of suffering. But then the end of verse four, he says something interesting. He says, my heart within me is desolate. Now, Sometimes we're just too spiritual when we read the Bible. And here's what I mean. Sometimes we try to make that mean a lot of things that it don't mean, or a lot more than I think what God intends it to mean. What does desolate mean? It means barren. It means empty. It means a waste. And here's what the psalmist is saying. He said, it's like my heart's all dry. It's like it's all empty. It's like it's all barren. He said, I, I, I go to the place where I want to commune with God and I don't find any strength and I don't find any help and I don't find any refreshing there. He goes on to say in verse five, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. And here we have similar language. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, Selah. We could say it this way. It was a season of silence and suffering. But it was a season of staleness, spiritually speaking. He's saying my spiritual life just feels dried up. It feels like a like a husk. We uh, when our garden was uh, finished, really our garden wasn't finished with us, but we were finished with our garden. And that's how every year of gardening ends. I get tired of it long before it gets tired of me. And uh, my wife, she wanted to save the okra seeds. And uh, so we let the okra pods just dry up and. And, and, and husk up on, on the stalk. And then she went out and took the loppers and, and started cutting them all off there. Lopper is a good southern word. I think if you go up north and ask for loppers, they might not know what you're talking about. I don't know, but lopper sounds like a good redneck word to me. Took the loppers and cut all those husks off. And then she'd begin to shell those. She'd, she'd break them. And there's just no moisture whatsoever in them. If you shake them, it sounds like a rattlesnake's tail or like a child's rattle or toy and when i think of this period of time in the psalmist's life it reminds me of that same level of dryness have you ever just felt so spiritually dry if if life shook you you just rattle you just feel as though there's there's nothing that is that is robust there is nothing resilient you feel brittle and ready to break the psalmist he looks back to a time in his life when it wasn't like that but he says now i'm experiencing this staleness we titled this series of, or just messages in a row, whatever you want to call them, The Desires of a Distressed Heart. In the first six verses, he describes how he's struggling. And then beginning at verse 7, he begins to ask God to do some things. Now, I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life, I knew there was something wrong. Sometimes I even knew what was wrong, but I had no clue what needed to be done to fix it. There's been times when I've struggled spiritually and I could even put my finger on maybe some of the, the leverage points in my life of where things were, were, were seeming to be lacking or, or falling flat. 
But to see a clear path and how to fix it, I just didn't know what I needed. I'm glad for my King James Bible. Because oftentimes when I don't know what I need, God always knows what I need. And so the psalmist begins to describe, he puts in a requisition form, and he asks for five things that he needs during this time. Maybe you're going through a similar time in your life. And if you are, I believe these five things would help you as well. We won't look at them in order. We're going to focus on only one tonight. But in verse number nine, he he asked God for his foes to be defeated. He says, deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. Verse number 10, he asked that his path be clear. He says, teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Verse number 11 He asks that his faith be strengthened. He says, quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake, for thy righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. A couple weeks ago, we preached the first of these from verse number seven, where the psalmist requests that his prayers would be heard. He says, hear me speedily, O Lord, my spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. I want you to notice with me verse number eight tonight. I've got just a few simple thoughts to share with you. <clears throat> In verse number eight, the psalmist says this. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. For in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk. For I lift up my soul unto thee. It's an interesting verse. There's two operative words in this verse that I want to draw your attention to. And there's two things the psalmist asks for. In the first, he says, cause me to, and here's the first operative word. He says, cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. He doesn't say, Lord, I want you to love me. He knows the Lord loves him. But he wants to hear the loving kindness of the Lord. The second thing he asks, he says, cause me to, and here's the second operative word, to know. The way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. Both of these things regard activities of the mind. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. Here's what the psalmist wanted, number two. First was his prayers to be heard, but second, he wanted his mind to be sound in the midst of his trials. I think we give far too little attention to our thought life. I think we've conflated the notion of our personality and emotions with the idea of our thought line. I think likewise we have conflated the idea of our spiritual life and our thought line. And in doing so, I think we have created a massive blind spot where we allow ourselves points of weakness that are unnecessary in our life. What you spend your thoughts on will determine much of your frame of mind, your disposition, And the choices you make in your life. I'll tell you this. You start going through trials. Your mind will do funny things. Start going through hard times. And things you can't explain. Your mind will start going to places. You didn't even know it had the coordinates for. You'll think things you would have never thought you would have thought. And you'll wonder about things you would have never doubted about. And the psalmist recognizes that. While it's true that our heart must be yielded to God. And it's true that the deeds of our body must be yielded to him. We must yield our members as instruments of righteousness. 
He recognizes that the mind plays a major role in how we interact with the trials that we go through. I'll read you just a quick ensemble, not even of whole verses, just phrases from the New Testament that refer to the importance of the mind. The Apostle Paul wrote the church at Rome, and he said in Romans 7.25 that with the mind he served the law of God. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, he said we have the mind of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, he wrote that his fear was that the serpent would have beguiled, as he did Eve through his subtlety, would beguile the church at Corinth so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Tells me that your mind, your way of thinking can be corrupted. Philippians 2.5, he writes that New Testament church and he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he reminds them that if they'll bring things to the Lord in prayer, that the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, would keep their hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit put the pen in Paul's hand that he might write to the church at Thessalonica because the Holy Ghost of God was worried that they would be shaken in mind in 2 Thessalonians 2.2. And then Peter, of course, writes to those strangers which are scattered and he charges them to gird up the loins of their mind. You don't guard your mind. You'd be amazed how much it spiritually weakens your life. The psalmist recognizes the importance of guarding his thought life. Notice in our text, two points of anchor for his mind in the midst of trials. We've already mentioned them in passing, but the first is the very first phrase of this verse. He says, cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Say, preacher, what can keep me sane in the midst of, of strife and struggles? What can keep my mind right? In the midst of trials. Well, for the psalmist, notice number one tonight, that his mind is anchored by God's love. So what do you mean, preacher? He knows whatever else he doesn't know. He does know that God loves him. I can't promise you what your life will look like two days from now. You Listen, we may be standing around a casket somewhere with somebody that you and I both love. I can't promise you that won't be the case. I was hearing someone tell a story. I think mom was telling me, you got to watch things she says. She can't even spell right. But she's telling me about somebody that she knew. And this might be somebody even in here might have known who this is. I don't remember exactly who it was about the house burning down. I can't remember exactly who it was. It's exactly right. Gary Hensley that comes to our senior saints. Uh, His sister and her husband They were off on a trip on vacation. They lost a child while they were gone, a grown child, but they lost a a child. And whenever they got back home, they found that their house had burnt to the ground while they were on vacation. Man, you talk about your life being tore all to pieces. I can't promise you you won't walk into a situation like that a week from now. I can't promise you won't get that call from the doctor with the worst possible news. I can't promise that your kid won't break your heart. I can't promise that your home won't implode, but I can promise that no matter what transpires, the same God that loves you today will love you then. Now you say, all right, preacher, that's good and everything, but I already know that. How's that going to help me? Well, here's how it's going to help you, because in those moments of darkness, that's when we begin to lose sight of it. You say, preacher, I know that God loves me. Then why have you whispered and asked him why he don't love you when things are bad? Why have you wondered? 
if he's given up on you when things have gone sideways. You say, oh, preacher, you just stand on your high horse. Nope, I've done it just like you have. And so what can we do in those moments? Well, notice three things in this little phrase. Notice, number one, the evidence that he desired. He says something interesting. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness. When he talks about God's loving kindness, he's talking about the record and testimony or evidence of God's love. And the psalmist probably meant this in a number of ways. You say, preacher, how could I hear of God's loving kindness? Well, it could be recounted by the testimony of memory in our mind, being reminded of the good things that God has done in our life. It could be recounted by the inspired pages of God's word as he reveals to us time and time again the immutable, faithful character of his loving kindness. And then oftentimes we hear it echoed in the testimonies of other people around us. when We're reminded of God's presence and patience and persistence in their life. Here's what the psalmist understood, and here's where his wisdom comes from. He knows that what he needed to hear more of was not more of his problems, but more of God's person. He didn't need to, we, we use the term cathartic. Barney said cathartic. I like that better. We use the term cathartic. And we speak as though sometimes complaining, murmuring, grumbling has its own therapeutic element. The truth of the matter is, when things are difficult in your life, you don't need to hear more of what's bad. You need to hear more of how the Lord's good in your life. It's part of why it's so destructive, this 24-hour media news cycle that we get plugged into. Because if you if you stare at that stuff long enough, you'll forget there's a God in glory. You'll forget he's in control. You may not forget the fact of it, but it'll quit shaping your worldview. And you'll begin to dismiss the immutable things of God and his character and his nature that you know to be true. You say, preacher, I can't explain what I'm going through, and I can't explain it either. But I know this, what you need is not to hyper-focus upon the problems you're experiencing, but instead to get your mind focused on the character and nature of God. You need to be reminded that no matter what has happened or will happen, none of it will be an indictment against God's love. It will all only be evidence that he does indeed love you. I see the evidence that he desired. Number two, I see the diligence that he displayed. He says, cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. It's interesting to note, uh, some commentators have suggested this psalm was written at night, and we really have no way of knowing for sure. But I think we could all recognize that the usage of that term morning denotes the idea of earliness. The psalmist is saying, I need this sooner rather than later. Sometimes we wallow in our own troubles, and only after we are good and caked up like a sow in mud, do we then come to God and ask him to soothe our heart. What foolishness that is. Instead, when we enter trials, when we enter difficulties, when we're in the midst of our struggles, that should be the time that we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you desperately in this moment. The psalmist says, I'm not going to wait till another day or two or three has passed. Have you ever had something you needed to do? You know you needed to do it. You refused to do it out of just pure stubbornness and procrastination until it reached a point of critical mass and you were forced to go and do it only to then sit around and gripe that you hadn't done it sooner. I just described us both. And the fact of the matter is, we are just as bad in the spiritual realm 
to those habits as we are. I do it all the time, man. I'll mess up. I'll sin. I'll do something wrong. I know I need to get it right. I know I've done wrong. God's already told me I've done wrong. I've already agreed with him that I've done wrong, but I just refuse to get it right with him. And sometimes I'll live in misery two, three, four, five days a week. Uh, No telling how long before I finally just cry, uncle, and come to God and ask his forgiveness and then sit around and Christian cuss myself for the fact that I didn't go and and make it right sooner. You know, the same thing is true in our life regarding getting God's strength and God's help. Why do you want to wait until your breaking point? I want you the moment you feel the pressure, go to the Lord and say, now, Lord, I need your help. I see the evidence that he desired. I see the diligence that he displayed. But notice the confidence that he declared. I love this. He says, for in thee do I trust. He connects inextricably the idea of his faith and God's person. He he wants to be reminded of what God's done. But he can only be blessed and strengthened by what God has done because of what he knows of God's person. That God is unchangeable. You see, sometimes we want to praise God when the light at the end of the tunnel shows up. But the fact of the matter is, faith is built not for when the light appears at the end of the tunnel, but when we're in the darkest of that journey. And the psalmist is able to gain strength from the Lord because his faith is not connected to his circumstances. His faith is not connected to his plan or his his vision of how he could come through this trial. It's not connected to the friends or support system that he has around him. It's not connected to foolish notions of of fate or statistics, but rather it's connected to the person of God. He says, "I, I can't I can't trust that I will know the right thing to do, but I'm not trusting me. I'm trusting him. You know, sometimes people will say things like, well, it's bound to get better. That's not true. Let me just encourage you a little bit tonight. There's no rules written into the DNA of the universe that suggests it's bound to get better. People say sometimes, well, it couldn't possibly get worse. Usually it could. Usually it could. So where do we get our hope? Where do we get our strength? Where do we get our song? Well, it's not tied just to mere silly notions of fate, but it's tied to the person of the Lord. Knowing that he is faithful, no matter what we're experiencing, no matter what we're going through, He doesn't change. He says, Lord, I'm trusting you. And because you are an unchangeable God, I can gain strength during this trial. Notice, not only is his mind anchored by God's love, but notice a second thing, and I'm done tonight. I had a third point, but I sneezed and it flew out the truck on the way in. So notice the next phrase. He says, cause me to know the way wherein I should walk. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk is what he says. For I lift up my soul unto thee. His mind in the midst of this is anchored by two things. One, God loves me. It keeps him from the darkness, right? It keeps him from from spiraling into those places of, of having a crisis of faith. He's able to lean effectually upon the Lord because no matter what he doesn't understand, he does know this to be true that The same God that loved him in the sunshine loves him in the storm. But the second thing is his mind is anchored by God's leading. Now, here's where I think we find some wiggle room to allow our anxiety to gain a foothold. We'll say things like this. Well, now, preacher, I know God will do right, but I worry whether I'll do right. Well, if I'm being honest, 
sometimes I worry whether I'll do right. Uh, as a pastor, I worry whether you'll do right. But we need not live a constant life of anxiety and worry. Instead, we ought to do exactly what the psalmist does here and plead and seek and surrender to God's will in our life. There's great peace of mind in knowing that God is driving, that he has the reins. I'll tell you, there's no greater recipe for undue angst than to be making your own decisions in life. It's funny, when you're young, you want responsibility. And then you find out all that means is taxes. And most of you would give anything to live a life free of responsibility. We don't want that responsibility. We instead want to be able to be footloose and fancy free. I was watching one of these little babies the other day. I can't remember whose baby it was, but that baby was just laying there, just sleeping. What gives it the right? You know, like it didn't have a care in the world. And I, you know, I looked at this baby. I thought, man, that's so unfair. If I could sleep like that for one night, I'd conquer the world. And that baby just sleeping like that's what it's built for. But, you know, oftentimes the reason we struggle is because our life is so fraught with anxiety Because we have taken the reins into our hands and we've made ourselves the master of our own destiny. And we've decided it's our job to herd all the cats, to keep everything in, to make sure it all goes right. Psalmist says, I'm not going to live that way. Instead, he says, Lord, I want you leading. And when you're leading, I know I can have great peace of mind. Notice there's three things here. He wants the Lord's leading. Let me say it this way. It's interesting how he says this. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk. And how you read that verse, it can really have a couple of perspectives about it. But I don't think one's exclusive of the other. For instance, when we think of the phrase, the way, we think of a manner. We think of a disposition, right? The way of something. Whenever uh, early New Testament Christians, before they were called Christians at Antioch, history would suggest to us that they were merely called as being in the way. They would say those people are in the way. What they mean is is they believe a certain way and they live a certain way. Their conduct, their conversation. And I would say this, we will have great peace of mind if God's leading in the conduct of our life. Psalmist says, I don't want to go by intuition, but rather I want to go by the precepts of your word. You want to know that you're making the best decisions in your life? Live a life of a Bible believer. Let the Bible be the rule of your life. Let it guide and govern everything that you do. No man has ever had reason to apologize for being a Bible believer. And following and obeying the Bible has never, if we've done it in the spirit of Scripture and in the way in which God presented it and intended it, it's never given cause for shame or for reproach. Often in my life, the things I'm most embarrassed about are not times when I've done what God expected of me, but times when I've done what Toby wanted to do. And I've certainly got a whole long list of those. Uh, I was, I can't remember what the context this was the other day. Somebody was talking about, I don't know, being offensive in church or something like that. And, and, uh, it was talking about a preacher that was struggling to take a stand over an issue was what we was talking about. Somebody had made the comment, said, you know, this guy, he don't want to offend anyone. That's why he won't speak out on this issue, is he doesn't want to stand on truth because it might offend people. And I thought to myself, 
it'd be nice just for once to offend people with the truth. I usually do it with my personality. It's usually not anything like any strong biblical stand because you people love the Bible. Usually it's just me saying a bunch of nonsense that makes people mad and runs them off. And I'll tell you, man, the things I've been most embarrassed about in the way I've conducted myself have not been times when I followed the Lord's leading, but it's been times when I've done what I sought to do. I think he's talking about in the conduct of his life. But then he says this, the way wherein I should walk. And this denotes the idea of the course of his life. So not just the way he walks, but the way as in the path, the journey, the, the, the course that he should be taking. And I would say in our life, if we want peace of mind, man, this is so especially true in the midst of trials. I tell people all the time, people come want to join the church. I'll say, have you prayed? Do you believe it's the will of God? Uh, people will call me sometimes, preacher, I'm praying about moving down. I'm praying about this. I'm praying. Have you prayed? Do you know it's the will of God? I've told untold numbers of people when that, when I've sat and they've said, preacher, we believe, we believe we want to join the church. And I've said, yeah, the only reason to join is because it's the will of God. Don't join because you like my preaching, because there'll be days you don't. Don't join because you like the singing. There'll be days that the piano ain't in tune. Don't join because you like the people, because there'll be days they step on your toes. Join because you know it's the will of God, because if you know it's the will of God, then in those moments, it'll give you the grace to be able to operate. And listen, in our life, whatever decision we're making, be it a be it a job choice, be it a, a a a housing move, be it some spiritual decision that must be made in our life, maybe a breaking fellowship or or maybe a being a witness in a certain area, whatever it is, we need to be buttressed on both sides, fortified underneath by the firm conviction that we're in the will of God. That's what's going to sustain us in those times. The psalmist says, Lord, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. Just please show me that it's where you want me to go. Show me that it's your will, and it'll give me the strength that I need. Now, you may say, preacher, I'm out in the middle of something. I don't know whether it's the will of God. First step is to begin to seek the Lord and say, now, Lord, I want your will. If that's right where I'm at, praise God. If not, Lord, show it to me. But I believe this. God's gone to great lengths. In fact, he has commanded that we know the will of God. We have no reason to think that he would not help us in knowing it if we desire it. I'd say in the conduct of his life and in the course of his life, and this is what it leads to. I love this and I'll be done. He says this, for I lift up my soul unto thee. Now, remember, your soul is your consciousness, right? It has to do with your emotional life to some degree, and it certainly, I think, overlaps into your thought life. But I think in the context of what we're reading here, he's talking about his wholeness, spiritually speaking, his well-being. And he's saying this, Lord, I'm asking you to lead me in this way, and now I'm committing my spiritual, mental well-being unto you, and I'm trusting it in your hand. I would say his mind is anchored by God's leading in the conduct and course of his life, but ultimately in the consequences of his life. Good thing about it, we sing the song all the time about going home and how, you know, many times in my childhood as we traveled, along, you know, uh, by nightfall, how weary I'd be, and uh, how the little child falls asleep in the back of the car, and the father says, my child, we're going home, and it draws a spiritual analogy to you and I, gaining peace and strength from the Lord, and knowing that he's driving the car, he's in control, so much in our life, listen, trials are hard enough as they are, they're hard enough as they are, without you compounding the angst, by deciding that you have to be the spiritual superhero. 
that can handle it all without God's help. Let me tell you something. Can't none of us handle it without God's help? Talking about not even for a millisecond, can we? And if we don't guard our frame of mind, we lay ourselves all the more open to the predations of the devil, to the, to the, to the evils of the flesh, to the influence of the world. We better guard our thought life, and we do that by anchoring it to God's love and to God's leading. Let's bow together tonight. Miss Connie's going to come play. I want to give you an opportunity, if God spoke to your heart, to meet him in the altar. I just want you to mind the Lord tonight. If, if nobody's in the altar, I won't be mad. But uh, I do believe this. If God spoke to your heart, I believe that's where you need to be. I believe you need to meet him down here. Lord, I love you. I thank you for the word of God. I pray that you'd help us and bless us during this invitation. We ask it in Christ's name.